This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows. Guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. Welcome to the program for Sunday, October 10th, 2010, and a happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. And uh, I'm imagining that many of you celebrated today. You probably had the whole gang over and a big turkey. We had a 25-pounder, 32 people in the house. We actually celebrated Saturday uh, and combined it with the, uh, the twins' fourth birthday, which is actually today. So while they're in bed, uh, one day maybe they'll dip into the archives and and find this show. Uh, So I'll wish North and Zach a very happy and special fourth birthday today. A little bit later, we'll check in with uh, uh, Bill Gibbons, our dinosaur hunter. Now, normally, uh, Bill is uh, on an expedition in search of uh, living dinosaurs, uh, but this is a bit of a departure. Uh, When he uh, joins us after uh, 1230, you'll see what I mean. He's actually been in Europe, just got back from Europe. And while he was over there, see, Bill is a, uh, is among other things, one of the hats he wears, he's a private investigator. And so he has all the the gadgets of the trade. He just bought himself a really nifty pair of night vision binoculars. So he took them to Europe and uh, to Scotland, his old stomping grounds. And uh, what he was doing over there, in fact, was investigating some of the local vampire legends. And uh, he's got some interesting tales to tell, for sure. That's uh, after 12.30 when Bill Gibbons checks in. And in just about a half hour's time, Another spooky story as we approach Halloween, of course. The Reverend Gordon Williams is an actual exorcist. 
and he lives right here in the southwestern uh, uh, area. He's, he's uh, living in Orangeville, and he, his phone is constantly ringing with people who believe that they or a loved one are possessed by a demon, or perhaps their house is uh, a hotbed of demonic activity. So that's what the Reverend Gordon Williams spends a lot of his time doing. Uh, in in addition to uh, to ministering, um, he is here's the interesting thing. You might discount the possibility of demonic possessions and so forth, but the Reverend studied or or was at the uh, the seminary at Princeton University. That's a pretty credible institution, wouldn't you say? So that makes what he says to me anyway, or it carries a lot more weight. So uh, he'll have some spine-tingling tales to tell for sure when uh, the Reverend Gordon Williams joins us in about a half hour to to talk about exorcisms. Right now, though, a bit of a departure from the paranormal and the occult, although frightening nonetheless. And that is all this political subterfuge that goes on backstage in the global theater. The... uh, the secret agendas of the uh, the ruling elite. Joel Skousen uh, joins us from time to time. He's the editor of World Affairs Brief. It's a weekly news analysis service which is dedicated to providing an understanding of the hidden agendas behind the actions of world leaders and other powerful individuals who influence government from behind the scenes. He's also a political scientist by training, specializing in the philosophy of law and constitutional theory. And uh, he's also a designer of high-security residences and and retreats. Great pleasure to have on The Conspiracy Show. It's been a while. Joel Skousen. Joel Skousen, how are you? I'm just fine, Richard. It's always good to be with you. And uh, another great uh, edition of uh, the the World Affairs Brief. How do you decide on a on a weekly basis what gets in and 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 what doesn't make the cut? There's so much information out there. There really is, and it's increasing, Richard. Uh, I normally I get about a hundred uh, sends uh, or postings from my research staff a day to to cull through, and what I usually do is pick and choose the best portions of uh, pieces that I want to use, put them in a file, and then I uh, accumulate those bits and pieces until I want to write, typically on Thursday for a Friday edition. And normally I've been running some 30 to 35 pages of material, and now in the past month or so it's been going up to 50 pages that I've got to cull down to the eight or nine in the World Affairs Brief. What this indicates is that there's a lot more acceleration going on in terms of bad news, in terms of maneuvers by government to try to uh, impinge and infringe upon our liberty. And uh, so what I try to do uh, in answer to your question specifically is I try to pick out, this rather than just report news that's fairly accurate report, accurately reported, I try to pick news that people aren't going to see that uh, gives an additional light on how things go on the inside of government that they're not telling us about. In other words, I like to focus on what the news media purposely omits from the story, which would influence dramatically people's opinion about what's going on in Canada and the United States. Well, let's begin with a, uh, an interesting story. Here we are, not quite two years, not even halfway into the presidency of uh, Barack Obama, and uh, an interesting interview 
Uh, a documentary filmmaker speaks with a former White House insider who says that President Obama has lost his fire for the job already. That's right. It's a fascinating interview. We got several leaks like that during the Bush administration. You know, uh, George Bush had pretended to be a Christian and a conservative, and we'd find out from various leakers that when he would have a Friday prayer breakfast with various high-powered ministers that he invited to the White House, he would bear witness to them about Christ, and then after they'd leave, they'd sit around and slap each other on the back and laugh about how they'd snookered these ministers. And... um, continue on with their four-letter curse words about uh, religious people blowing the cover on him. And this is what a a Democratic insider essentially has done to Obama. He says um, some things that we have long known about or suspected, those of us who are watching him closely. One is that, um, uh, you know, the media really gave him a lot of help in order to get elected. They had talking points and propaganda points they would feed to the media, and those that uh, would pick up on those and publish them would get better access, kind of the carrot uh, approach uh, to that. Find out that he's lost his fire, he loved the campaign, he loves the ego trip of being in front of people, but he does not like the work involved in being president. He doesn't like going to meetings, Um, he doesn't articulate himself very well, the staff is very discouraged in the White House because they can't get him to respond or make decisions. Uh, He's more interested in watching television, uh, mostly sports. Uh, He often will tell his staff when they're at a meeting, well, give me a report of what you decide. But what the Democratic insider did not um, say and does not know, perhaps, is that there's a reason for this in both George Bush and uh, Barack Obama, and that is that they're puppets. In other words, they don't make the ultimate decisions, and they know, in fact, that others are really in charge, and so they don't have the motivation to do the work that a real president would uh, do unless they have the intellectual energy just to be interested in the process. Um, But this discouragement, this apathy that involves presidents and this irritation at criticism, you know, they're kind of in a a glass... uh, bubble there. They're irritated. Uh, Obama apparently obsesses with Fox News, um, and he really doesn't have any way to defend himself because everything is scripted for him. So he's got to wait for his advisors to write an appropriate response. They've got to plan that response, and his whole destiny as a president really depends on uh, uh, what the powers that be around him, his handlers and uh, uh, his advisors tell him he must do. Joel Skousen editor, publisher of World Affairs Brief, will tell you how to subscribe to this newsletter a little bit later. In the the story that appears in White of, uh, World Affairs Brief, White House insider on Obama, the president has lost his fire. Uh, other presidents are mentioned, and I guess at a certain point, they too realize, as you say, they are in fact puppets. Uh, and so they have a lot of time on their hands. You mentioned how different presidents have coped with this. You mentioned Obama uh, watches a lot of ESPN. Nixon, how did he cope with this? Well, Nixon was depressed a great deal of the time, and so he went on mood-altering drugs. Uh, In fact, the inside story is that these were kind of suggested to him to get over his anger. You know, there's a lot of anger between these people who are puppets. Obama just rails at certain staff people when he can't get his way. Bush did the same thing, and so did Nixon. So he went on mood-altering drugs, and this was very much to the liking of Henry Kissinger. Uh, in fact, uh, Kissinger or uh, Nixon drank a lot as well. Uh, 
So either he was in a stupor from, uh, uh, as I say, these uh, drugs that he would take or from alcohol and would uh, was asleep a lot of the time. Very uh, interesting inside a book came out about uh, three years ago uh, uh, talking about how Kissinger, in, in fact, uh, ran the White House, would often uh, be sitting at... Uh, the desk when they would give briefings at the president's desk. Uh, Kissinger did the same thing during the uh, H. Uh, w. Bush uh, time. Uh, one staffer walked in and was surprised to see Kissinger at the president's desk, and the president was sitting in the position that a, an advisor normally be, getting a briefing from Henry Kissinger. So this is some really good inside stuff that we get from only from time to time uh, from people who... Uh, essentially lose their job at the White House and decide to talk. How, how, at, at what point would, for example, do you suspect President Obama would realize that he's not in charge, he's effectively a puppet? Would, would that happen before he takes office or shortly thereafter? No, no, absolutely before he takes office, even before the process even starts. I have, you know, when you track Obama's... Um, uh, progress uh, in in life. Um, he uh, you know he started out as a Marxist, a real socialist background, and uh, then at some point during his college years, uh, our suspicion is he got recruited into the CIA, and uh, that's when you start to manage and massage a person. And when at, at some juncture they decide we're going to run you for public office, any objection says, well look, I'm an illegal alien, you know, I don't even have a U.S. passport. Well, we'll fix that. And we'll also fix your financial situation. So when you see them start to uh, uh, arrange for more money to come into his lap, then you know he's taken the bite, he's started to get on board, and he's become a Manchurian candidate, so to speak. Uh, I also covered in today's World Affairs Brief uh, the story of uh, uh, Michelle Obama uh, t- getting a job with University of Chicago Medical Center uh, part-time job, 20 hours a week as a uh, coordinator of volunteer efforts at the hospital. I mean, you can tell from that job description, this is not a high-powered job. What's her salary? $120,000 a year. My word. And then, a year later, it was up uh, to to $317,000. Now, think about that. That's more than what 90% of mayors or 95% of mayors in the United States uh, get, and she was getting 317000 That was the year that Barack Obama got elected to the Senate, and one of his first acts was to add an attachment to, to a spending bill to give a million dollars to the University of Chicago Medical Center. There you go. I was speaking with uh, Wayne Madsen uh, a couple of weeks ago on the program, and um, apparently uh, Michelle Obama, the First Lady, uh, conducted an interview for a French magazine. I think the interviewer was actually Sarkozy's uh, wife, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, I think I have that right. Anyway, in in this interview, Michelle Obama essentially reveals that uh, her husband is a one-term-and-out president because she's concluded— and she has a great deal of influence over him. She's concluded they simply can't make, or she can't make enough money while she's first lady. <laughs> what do you think about well, that? That's not the, that may be true. She's used to an awful lot more, but uh, that's not the real reason, of course. Uh, I think the real reason this, uh, this presidency is imploding. There's a lot of infighting that came out with this uh, interview. Um, 
that Pat Dollard had, a conservative documentary filmmaker in Hollywood. Um, but the Democratic insider said, I mean, literally the White House is falling apart. There's three factions as I've, as I've analyzed it. There's the national security faction run by General James Jones, who, by the way, just announced his retirement today after only two years. Um, that's the main faction that is an extension of Henry Kissinger. This is the national security advisor that said at the Munich Security Conference in February, we take our daily marching orders from Henry Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft, and Sandy Berger, and those are all part of the same association. Unelected officials giving daily marching orders to the national security advisor to the president. Now, that's the inside link of the real control over the U.S. presidency. comes through his handler, which is usually the uh, national security advisor. Then there's Rahm Emanuel, who's just leaving, by the way. This is the real infighter um, from dark side operations of U.S. government. This is the arm twister. This is the person that that uh, threatens and brings up uh, dirt on congressmen to get them to change their votes. And then there are the leftists that had to be brought into the White House because they believed that Obama was one of them. In fact, he's not. He's a globalist. He's a puppet for the globalists. But he has to pay his dues to the left, which got him elected. And they are the ones most dissatisfied with Obama uh, because uh, of a couple of things. One, he keeps doing the same thing that George Bush did, even though he said he was going to promise. His leftist entourage is very dissatisfied with that. But then he's all, they're also dissatisfied because Obama is incapable of articulating anything without a script. The insider said, uh, you know, just incredible. Off script, this guy can't make a coherent sentence. He hymns and haws. It's a, a great deal of uh, time for him to uh, crank the wheels, and what he comes up with is, is simply not articulate. So that's no surprise to us who have seen him off script without his teleprompter and apparently... Uh, Everything about his education, Harvard and all of those things, has been uh, done with the assistance of others, and that's why we don't have any writings of Obama at the Harvard Law Review. It was just a token position. This guy is not that smart. Joel Skousen, editor, World Affairs Brief. Uh, let's uh, move on to uh, to Pakistan. Uh, I mean, it's still related to Obama, of course, because uh, Bob Woodward's book, uh, about Obama's war, what's uh, Pakistan always seems to be on the brink of, of of collapse, and obviously the internal tensions there uh, between the ISI and the civilian government only exacerbated by those horrible floods. What's going on in Pakistan right now? Well, Pakistan has been a controlled com- uh, country ever since the CIA got in bed with the ISI and started to control. Uh, CIA's terrorists, which I call al-Qaeda at the top. In other words, the CIA has always controlled Osama bin Laden, who's, who's been dead now for several years. Even though they, they keep bringing out tape recordings of his voice, they've uh, you know, manufactured these to keep this war on terror in front of people. But there's some controlled terror side, and it's been operating out of Pakistan for years. Uh, so you have a you have three basic factions working out of Pakistan. You have the dark side of U.S. government uh, operating with arm's length transactions through the ISI, then through al-Qaeda, then through the Taliban to try to keep this war uh, going. Then you have the legitimate Pakistan uh, military, which is uh, not allowed to infringe upon the ISI. The ISI is Pakistan's version of the CIA. 
not allowed to infringe upon their territory, uh, who are basically exacerbating terrorism uh, for, you know, to purposes to keep justifying U.S. intervention uh, in that part of the world. And the Pakistani military legitimately trying to fight uh, a Taliban uh, revolution there. Then you have the uh, political side of uh, essentially a puppet. Uh, you have Zardari, uh, you know, the current president. Uh, Musharraf is trying to make a play to get back into power. They eliminated um, uh, Benazir Bhutto, uh, Bhutto uh, uh, who was essentially not playing along with the American powers to be and shielding their operations with the ISI as she was supposed to be doing. She was the one, by the way, who admitted in a public television show that Osama bin Laden was dead, and that she had uh, proof from her own uh, intelligence people that that was so. So I think what we've got here, we've got a nuclear-armed power that the U.S. allowed to gain nuclear weapons uh, through their uh, uh, Pakistani, uh, or basically through uh, a back channel that uh, they transferred to uh, Mr. Khan of Pakistan, who was then to distribute nuclear secrets through North Korea and to um, Iran. We started their program there, even though we kind of sabotaged it to slow them down. Uh, but there's this nuclear element of Pakistan, which makes it a very, very dangerous country. And um, But it's usually, it's, it's now in the hands of the United States government. And it appears as if these infighting factions within Pakistan are threatening to blow the cover on U.S. influence there, and that's why I think we're going to see a full-scale invasion of Pakistan in the name of saving it from the Taliban and probably come down in the next six months. A full-scale U.S. invasion of Pakistan. So is that what the military buildup in Afghanistan has been about from the beginning? Not about getting to Osama bin Laden, not about you know freeing the, the Afghani, primarily the, the women from the oppressive Taliban um, uh, oppression. It's about building up a, a presence in Afghanistan as a staging area for an invasion of Pakistan. That's right. Now, that's not going to be a full-scale invasion along what, I, what happened in Iraq, but we're going to see major troop mobilizations, and of course they have this 3,000-man Afghan Special Forces Army that they've created. Didn't mention anything about the U.S. Special Forces that are running that outfit. But those are apparently the, the preliminary shock troops, and we could see actual American troops moving in if there's a big enough crisis. Uh, but by the escalation that's going on right now in Pakistan in terms of drone attacks, in terms of helicopter U.S. incursions that killed Pakistani soldiers the other day, this is looking like uh, we're not winning this war at all, and it's, uh, in fact, the Taliban are advertising that they're getting stronger. I think we're going to see a justification for a major move uh, by NATO U.S. troops into Pakistan to save it, you know, from itself. And it's very unpopular. The Pakistanis do not like the American presence. They don't like the fact that their government's been covering for the American presence and lying to them. This looks like a, a major conflict of, uh, of insurgency in Pakistan rising uh, against American influence and against their own government for covering for that influence. Joel Skousen, editor, publisher of World Affairs Brief. We'll take a quick time out, come back. We'll talk about the great American folk hero, Representative Ron Paul of Texas, and his attempts, if ever there was a guy with a death wish, it might be him, his attempts to audit the Federal Reserve and find out where's all the gold. Back with more in a moment.
This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Joel Skousen with us, editor-publisher of World Affairs Brief. Before we get into Ron Paul and his efforts to edit the Fed or audit the Federal Reserve, uh, Joel, how can people subscribe to World Affairs Brief? Well, the World Affairs Brief does have a modest subscription price. Uh, people can go to my website, worldaffairsbrief.com, and get a free sample issue by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. Um, it gives a synopsis of the current brief at the website and uh, a lot of uh, free information. My specialty is putting back into the news the things that have been covered up by governments for years, and so there's a lot of information about former government cover-ups relative to assassination of presidents, Martin Luther King, uh, false flag terrorist attack like Oklahoma City bombing or 9-11. So I encourage people to go to the website to uh, find out more about my briefings. All right, uh, Joel, uh, not a lot of time uh, left, but uh, uh, Congressman Ron Paul of Texas uh, is uh, trying to audit the Federal Reserve, and he's telling them, show us the gold. What's this all about? Well, there's two different audits. One is to audit where the money went that the Federal Reserve was giving to other banks and uh, all the secret dealings of credit creation. That uh, actually got just watered down. It passed the uh, House and the Senate, but it was watered down to a single audit, not a continuing audit, and they'll be able to cover that up. But the gold is an even more problematic thing. In the London gold market, for example, it's now been discovered that they have very little physical gold on hand, and yet they have billions of dollars in contracts that are being bought and sold, and they can't be fulfilled. Now, nobody's going to find that out until uh, enough people decide to take physical possession. This is like the old gold bullion dealers of the Middle Ages who used to be putting out script uh, promises to pay in gold, and in fact, they didn't have enough gold. The same things that are happening. Ron Paul wants the Fed to show the American government, because they got possession of all the federal uh, treasury gold, and he suspects that it's not there. Uh, that in manipulating the price of gold, in fact, uh, they've been issuing a lot of paper and buying and selling of gold and paper. Part of the proof is that the mint keeps running short of gold. They can't keep up the demand for coins because of lack of gold. Now, how could that be if we've got tons in the basement of the Federal Reserve Bank? I thought it was supposed to be held at Fort Knox. Is Fort Knox empty then? <laughs> well, that's what they suspect. There's all There's some at Fort Knox, but... We just don't know where it is, but a lot of the gold went to the uh, vaults in the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, and a lot of it's gone overseas to um, major overseas central banks, and uh, we certainly have a right to know where the gold is. And it's, it's, it's very, very improper that the Fed was given the gold in the first place. I mean, it's enough that they get to print and create money and then uh, lend it to the U.S. government, get interest paid on that. But to have possession of the gold, real money, is another matter entirely. What does it say about the power of the Federal Reserve when essentially calls by people like Ron Paul to audit audit it are virtually ignored? If you or I were to say that to the Internal Revenue Service, they'd throw us in jail and, uh, and, and throw away the key. Absolutely. Well, it's typical of everything going on in our government today. You know, you, you demean the Constitution. You say it's anachronistic in a public... Uh, Hall of Congress, and when Ron Paul goes to get the tape recording to hold their feet to the fire, it's missing. There's not only no prosecution of people outwardly violating their oath to the Constitution, uh, which is a federal offense, uh, 
there's a cover-up so that they can't be prosecuted by it. All right, Joel, always a pleasure. And uh, we'll get you on um, again sooner. We, um, we always leave it too long, and there's too much uh, information out there that we need to get to people. So, uh, again, we urge them to go to worldaffairsbrief.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and we look forward to your next appearance on The Conspiracy Show. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Joel Skousen. shadows where the truth often hides you're listening to the conspiracy show with richard serrett from zoomer radio am 740 i'm sure you've noticed there are an awful lot of uh, films in theaters right now that have to do with uh, demons or exorcisms uh, vampires and uh, i just find it very interesting that this is happening right now uh, I, I know that, um, you know, when it comes to movies, uh, they're sort of, they're cyclical, right? Uh, but for the longest while, the hottest topic in Hollywood seems to be the, well, the, the undead. What do you think about that? Do you think there's something uh, uh, evil afoot? Well, what am I saying? We're talking about Hollywood after all. <laughs> That's a bit of a, uh, uh, um, what should I say? It's redundant. Evil and Hollywood, all in one word, right? All in one sentence. Anyway, uh, it might surprise you to learn that uh, here in 2010, there are still men and women uh, involved in performing exorcisms. This is an ancient, ancient religious rite. Uh, obviously, the purpose is uh, to uh, assist certain individuals who have become victim to an, a supposed demonic possession. And yet, as far-fetched as that may sound, my next guest says he is so busy uh, responding to, uh, to phone calls and emails from people who, uh, who are fearful that uh, a loved one is, is under a demonic possession. The Reverend Gordon Williams is a, a well-known Canadian speaker, evangelist, pastor, TV personality, the author of several books and tapes. His uh, previous top-selling book, Like a Mighty Wind, has been a top-seller for several years. He was ordained by the United Church of Canada and remained with that denomination until 1986. He also became ordained by the Pentecostal Assembly of Canada. Gordon serves on the National Board of Directors for the Evangelical Church Alliance of Canada. He is a Princeton Theological Seminary graduate. The Reverend Gordon Williams. Hey, Gordon, how are you? Very well. Well, How are you? I'm, uh, it's been a while. I'm well, thanks. <laughs> yes. Has uh, your phone uh, been ringing off the hook as per usual, uh, getting yes. a lot of... Yes, indeed, it has. That's disturbing. Uh, well, it is, uh, It is. but on the other hand, it, d- it demonstrates the need that, that people have. The idea of possession, demonic possession... Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about uh, exorcisms, but sure. different different cultures have uh, d- different perspectives on the 
the uh, phenomenon known as demonic possession. Where, how do you uh, describe this phenomenon? How do you define it? Well, it means that uh, a an evil or unclean spirit comes inside a person like putting a hand in a glove and takes over control of their physical body and things they say. And so the person has no control over what they will be saying when this... It, it, it will not appear that a person is possessed all the time, but this thing will take over and cause them to do things that are embarrassing to them and to other people, uh, even to the point of being told to kill somebody or to kill themselves. How do you make the distinction between a genuine mental illness and someone who may believe, in fact, that they are possessed? Uh, usually, the person who's possessed will talk about a spirit of some kind that has either been talking to them or has come inside them. They're aware that something has come inside. Uh, occasionally, uh, because uh, there are uh, these evil spirits, uh, demons, they will imitate normal psychological, physical, and mental disorders. And the most often copied one that I have seen imitated was uh, schizophrenia. So, again, uh, I mean, there are obviously genuine cases of, yes. of, of schizophrenia. Yes, there are. And so, uh, one of the main ways that we can, I can find out whether they're, where they're at is to start talking about Jesus Christ. As soon as I start using his name, then if there's a demon involved, the person will start to react. In what uh, way? And even try to run out of the room or out of the building that we're in. Because they're fearful of the name. Yes, the evil spirit does not want to hear the name of Jesus Christ because they know who he is. Uh, in the scriptures, uh, I, when Jesus was dealing with, with uh, well, actually one type, one, uh, they said, we know who you are. You're the son of the Most High God. They're trying to downgrade him. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, and uh, they tried to talk him out of getting, casting them out of a man. And and so when we start talking, uh, for instance, some, several years ago when I was pastoring a church in Brampton, Ontario, uh, a young woman who had been involved in witchcraft and who was supposed to take over the leadership of a coven uh, came to see me. And she had been, some of the people in our church had been talking to her and telling her that she'd be set free from this possession, they assumed, and so she came to see me, and as soon as I started talking about Jesus Christ, she started to get she started to get very antsy, and and then she she, she said, "I got to get out of here," and she jumped up and and uh, she literally I, I, and started running down the the hallway of the church, bouncing off the wall from side to side, and crashed against the door at the end of the hallway. That's where I caught up with her, and so I, at that point I commanded the spirit evil spirit in her to leave her and go to the abyss, and it immediately left her. And she was back, had control of her own mind and thinking, and I prayed with her then to invite Jesus Christ to be their, her Savior and Lord, and she was fine from then on, and she's still fine to this day. Is that how it starts, that someone gets involved in a certain occult group, and then they become vulnerable to demonic possession? Who yes, Who is exactly. most vulnerable? Well, anybody is vulnerable, uh, especially if they get fooling around with any kind of occult or... See, uh, in the, the occult... Uh, place they are, they see these demons, uh, especially in Hinduism, they see them like gods, and but they're terrified of them because they know they can do a lot of harm, 
and and uh, like I've discovered on doing a number of talk shows with people who were were in were in Satanism, is that they carry a cross hidden in their clothes someplace, <laughs> uh, hanging upside down for the time when they know that Satan's going to turn on them, <laughs> and so they pull that cross out hoping to be able to ward him off with it. But of course, that's not what the cross means. <laughs> it doesn't give that kind of protection. <laughs> Now, in the the Exorcist, and you and I have talked about this. You went yes. to see the movie, and uh, yep. uh, we have this. Maybe it's a Hollywood uh, perception mm-hmm. of how these demonic possessions play out in the victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's uh, obviously uh, we see levitation of the body. We yep. we we hear the the uh, you know the Linda Blair character speaking yep. in foreign languages of which she had no previous knowledge. Uh, there's a physical uh, uh, a change in the body. Uh, the skin was pale. The uh, uh, scarification. Right. How much of that is accurate in your experience? Okay, it's interesting because uh, when that movie was being released in Toronto, I was asked by the CTV uh, uh, morning show to go and preview the movie and make a report on it. <laughs> Uh, I do a television report, and I, uh, which I, I was invited on several shows there. But, but what I saw on the screen was most of what I'd seen in, in our ministry. Now, there are a couple of things. Uh, Hollywood, they had kids, the kids' heads spun around. That is not. <laughs> uh, and the the other lie in it is that a, a a Christian, well, in that case, a priest could not deal with it. And that's true. There are some clergy that cannot deal with this. Um, and and there are certain kind of Christians that can deal with them, but nobody else has the authority to get rid of them. And this is why a lot of people can't understand. They think that they call their minister a priest or that he should be able to help them. And unless they've had the experience that Jesus describes in the New Testament as being baptized with the Holy Spirit, in other words, having the Holy God's Holy Spirit come inside of us to give us guidance and, and protect us, we, we can't get rid of them. Uh, but... Once you've had that experience, uh, then we have authority. Okay, hold on, uh, Reverend Williams. We'll take a time out, come back, and continue our conversation on demonic possession and exorcisms here on The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Uh, Reverend Williams uh, is here They're talking about his experience in the field of uh, exorcisms and demonic possession, having performed countless exorcisms uh, over the years in the southwestern Ontario region. Who would have thought that southwestern Ontario would be a, a hotbed of demonic activity, but his his phone uh, well, is ringing off the hook. Many places are, by the way. Uh, and at least any places we've lived. <laughs> now, uh, back to the, the movie The Exorcism. And yeah. you, you mentioned... Uh, that that certain uh, uh, people, even certain uh, uh, pastors or religious yes. figures, are unable yes. uh, to perform successfully an exorcism. We had the case of Pope John Paul uh, II mm-hmm. uh, a number of years before his death was uh, actually performed an impromptu exorcism in St. Pete- Peter's Square when um, a young, uh, it was a teenage girl, uh, basically uh, came up to him and he believed that she was possessed. He performed, or tried to perform an exorcism yeah. on her, and it failed. Yes. Uh, so it doesn't matter what your position is in a church, unless you've had this experience, 
Now, I'd say this. I know his predecessor had the authority to do this, but he does not have it. Pope John Paul II did not have it, but his predecessor, Pope John Paul I, did. Yes, that's correct. Why? Why? Because, um, see, there are many people who discount what, uh, what uh, the, the New Testament says about the importance of, of not only having, having your sins forgiven, but also it must receive the, the, what they, is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where God's Holy Spirit comes into us and begins to guide us and show us what things to do, and, but it also gives us authority. In fact, in Mark 16, uh, Mark 16 in, in the book in the Bible, of course, uh, in chapter 16, verses 17 through 18, it says, tells us, these signs will follow those who believe. Uh, they are signs of identification. Uh, they are signs of authenticity, uh, according to the Greek, anyway. And so there are four signs that w w a person must have to prove that they are what we call an authentic Christian who's been has experienced salvation and received God's power in the Holy Spirit. The first one on the list is to be able to cast out demons, which is interesting. Uh, and I remember when I first read that and studied it, I thought, well, why? Where in the world? What is, is this for real? And then later on in my ministry, I found it's very much very real. And uh, uh, it's the first thing on the list of identifying, uh, you know, a, a, a real Christian. The second one is that we can speak in a new language that we never learned. Thirdly, we have protection when we're doing our ministry, from well, protection from evil spirits, demons. And fourthly, we can pray for the sick with the laying on of hands, and they will be healed. And so if somebody wants to find out where a person, what kind of a Christian somebody is, he has to just ask them, do you have these four signs? <laughs> you speak a language? You speak a language that you had no prior knowledge of? That's right. It's, it's, it's popularly known as speaking in, in tongues or right. in tongues. But the tongues is the old English word for language. And so the Holy Spirit can give you the ability to speak and pray in a language you never learned, uh, a language that's real in existence today or in the past. All right. Now, you, you studied, uh, you, you attended seminary school at Princeton, did you not? Yes, I did, yes. Did they talk about exorcisms and, de and demonic possession then at Princeton? Uh, well, you can only cover so much in, in while you're studying, but... What they told us is this, that if it's in the New Testament, follow, believe it, follow it. And so with the first, my first uh, experience of uh, running into uh, a woman who called me for help, uh, I went to see her three times, and each time I, well, I started mentioning, well, first time I mentioned Jesus, she went out of her mind, she don't kick me out of there. Uh, before I got home, she was calling again, so I went back three times, and uh, I didn't know what I was dealing with, so I called a friend of mine from seminary, and he I, I told him I had a problem I, I couldn't figure out, and he, so I told him what was going on. He said, oh, it's a simple case of demon possession. A simple <laughs> case. Said, now listen, Dennis, you know I don't believe that sort of thing. And he said, Gordon, if you want to help the person, you better, you better at least act as if you did. So I called one of our professors who taught uh, counseling and who, uh, who had written several books on counseling, and, and his name was Earl Jabay. And so I called the, Dr. Jabay, and I said, listen, I've run across this problem. And, and he said, well, tell me the symptoms, and I did. And he said, oh, simple case of demon possession. And I said, whoa. I said, you mean this is real? He said, it's very real. And there are a lot of people who, who miss getting help because we have pastors who don't want to accept the fact that what the New Testament says is true. So that was the beginning for you. That was when you became a believer in demonic possession. Yes, very convinced. Uh, so the next, uh, so right now, shortly after that, when I found out about it, I went back to find a lady, and, and the, the neighbors said they'd taken her off in a in a, an ambulance someplace, and I couldn't find her. But 
just within a short period of time, uh, uh, a lady was talking to my wife about they moved into a new house and they heard voices in rooms. And in fact, she was in the in the attic one day packing some things away, and she heard a voice say, "Oh, do you want to see Jesus?" And she said, "Yeah, jump out the window." <laughs> she caught herself halfway out the my window. My word! And she realized something was going wrong here. But the, the night they moved in, the three little girls were put in one room because they were not unpacked, and they all come screaming out of the bedroom about, I don't know, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and talking about something in the closet, and they, you know, they couldn't see anything, and they thought they were making stuff up. But, in fact, I went through the house and got rid of those spirits uh, after that. You, you and I, uh, Reverend Williams, have talked many times over the years ab- yep. ab- about how uh, hauntings or, or uh, people's... People are misinterpreting a haunting. They think it's yes. the spirit of a of, of a, a dearly departed or yeah. someone who lived in the house prior come back. And you're yeah. saying that this is a great deception. Yeah, it is. Uh, the Bible calls them uh, 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 what, uh, familiar spirits. They come looking like somebody familiar to you, uh, and that can be uh, a family member. It could be uh, somebody who uh, some so-called famous person that died. It could be somebody who says they came from outer space. Uh, any number, uh, they're very deceptive, and uh, and they both often, well, they often start off being kind of friendly, and then they turn on the people, and then and somebody usually gets hurt or possessed, uh, or damage will happen to the house or to their children. So are you discounting entirely the possibility that there can be communion with uh, uh, dead relatives? I mean, I think the... Absolutely. There is no uh, chance no. of that. Hmm? There's no chance of a, a spirit communication. No, not whatsoever. Uh, the, however, I would say this. Before the New Testament, uh, apparently in some cases that did happen. But since Jesus came, that's... that's the, it, when you go to... Um, when you die, you either go to... Uh, uh, it's a one-way traffic, I guess you'd say. And in fact, nobody, uh, nobody can come back from the dead. Uh, that's very clear in the scriptures. But... Uh, these spirits will, will, you know, people often say, well, where do they come from? The Bible doesn't tell us where they come from, and they are not fallen angels. It's, it makes that very clear. I have some own theory, but um, I, I uh, uh, you know, I don't, I don't share that with Well, uh, how, do you, how do you distinguish between fallen angels and, and demons? Because they're two, two separate things. Fallen angels, all the angels that sinned are chained up in hell right now. Everyone except the devil who has an appointed job that he must do, and that is to test people to see if they're going to be faithful to the one God, who is the God, God, God of Israel, who is Jesus. And no, they're, they're, it's very clear in the New Testament. Well, uh, most, most people don't read their Bible very carefully, and because they don't, they miss things like this. Many uh, people say, try to tell us that, uh, that fallen angels are, are the demons, and no, doesn't say, that's, the Bible doesn't say that at all. It says that, in fact, there are two places, uh, you know, one in uh, the book of Jude, and the other one in, uh, it's Peter. Letter You're kind Peter. of trailing off there. I'll get you to speak yeah. up a little bit. Yeah. No, it's two places, that, certainly, that it, 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 it mentions what happened to the fallen angels. They are not free to go around. But they come pretending to be angels. The Apostle Paul talked about that. He said, don't be, don't be surprised that the servants of, of, of the devil come uh, uh, uh you know, pretending to be uh, uh, angels, uh, because even the devil does that. 
that pretends to be an angel from God. But she wasn't is an angel, but a fallen angel who has to do the work he's been assigned. So these demons then that uh, that possess people and and buildings and so forth. Yeah. What are they? Where do they come from? Are they are they powerful? Well, certainly they 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 are, they, they are fairly powerful when they go inside a person and take control of their bodies. And they can do a lot of damage in a building. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but real estate, uh, in real estate, if, if people do not tell people who they're, to whom they're selling a house that there is a spirit in here, they, they have a term for that. And if you don't, then you can, you know, they can, be, uh, can be taken to court and uh, forced to buy back the house, pay, you know, get the, pay the people that might back their money. So there's a demon clause in uh, in a real estate agreement. Uh, people probably yeah, not aware of that. Often is, and but they have to do, they have to get, make disclosure. Right. Uh, and uh, a friend of ours here, who, who's uh, real estate, uh, well, he's a broker and a, uh, agent. Uh, he he gave me the information that the sent out by the real estate. There's a you know an organization that the realtors gives keeps realtors up to date on uh, what's going on in real in real real estate today. All right, uh, Reverend Williams, uh, hold on. We'll come back and continue our discussion on exorcisms and demonic possession. My name is Richard Serrett. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Live from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. The Reverend Gordon Williams is uh, with us. We're discussing exorcisms and demonic possession. The uh, The idea that uh, the, the possessed person may possess human superhuman strength, uh, yeah. they can they have maybe certain paranormal abilities. Yep. Uh, give me an example of, uh, of that that you've experienced sure. firsthand. Okay, I received a call from a, a, a man about his son. The young man was about 21 years of age, and he told me that his son, I uh, called him that morning, and had, he, had this, he was possessed, and this demon was telling him to start killing people. And uh, he said, can you help us? And I said, yes. And I met them at a friend's church, uh, at, now down near Newcastle, Ontario. And um, he told me that this, well, this young man, he, he weighed about 150 pounds. Richard, he could lift up a loaded tractor trailer. Uh, trailer. You witnessed this. Yeah, I, I, incredible. I, I mean, there's no way that, you know, that I could even lift a tire, let alone 
the trailer. And and he said to me, "Listen, uh, can you can you handle this?" And I said, "Yes." He said, "Are you sure? This is a powerful demon." I said, I, "As long as I do what I'm supposed to do, you'll have no problems." So I met this young man in my friend's church, and uh, uh, when I came in, he was sitting in the front pew, and he's and when I came in, he was growling like a dog. Arr, arr, arr. And I said, "Are you John?" That's not his real name. And he said, uh, "Yes." He growled at me, and I said. I only want to ask you two questions, John. Do you want to be set free? And he said, he growled at me, and he said, yes. I said, okay, are you willing to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? He growled at me and said, yes. So I said, I had him come out the front of the church by the communion table, and I said, okay, I'm going to ask you the same two questions. And I did. And uh, are you willing to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Yes. Growled at me. And are you willing to receive the Holy Spirit? And he growled at me and he said, does that mean I have to speak in tongues? I said, I didn't talk to him about, him about that. Mm. And I said, uh, do you have a problem with that? He said, no, sir. And so I, I took authority over him, cast the demon out of him, prayed with him to for forgiveness and for receive God's Holy Spirit. And he began to speak in a new language. Now, his language was biblical uh, uh, Hebrew. And I said to his father, uh, does your son ever study biblical languages? He said, no, he never finished high school. And so he, the language that the Holy Spirit gave him was Hebrew. Now, I studied that for seven years, and I would sort of wish, you know, I'd like to have that happen instantaneously. <laughs> sure. Does that gift remain with him forever? Yes, yes. So it's, to this uh, day, it, he would it, be it, able it, to speak? It's God's communication system, actually. A lot of people don't realize that, speaking in this, uh, in this uh, language that the, that the Holy Spirit gives us. Uh, so that we can communicate on a on a quite a different level with God. So God, so that prayer no longer becomes a is is a a guessing game. You then have direct uh, conversations, uh, get information, you get direction. You have problems. The Holy Spirit tells you how to do deal with them. Uh, and also then, so then anyway, he uh, he's done well. I talked to a, a minister whose church who's we used that day, and uh, he said that he's doing well. He's doing very well. He's never looked back. And it's interesting because before we were, as we were leaving the church building, uh, the, the, this, the this voice of father said to me, well, the pastor said here to make sure you clean up before you leave. He said, I don't see anything uh, like messed up. I said, no, that's not what he means. He wants me to go through the building and make sure not, not, no demons are left here. <laughs> oh, my. And I did that, so, so it was okay. But in this case, it seems like the demon left without putting up much of a fight. Uh, I mean, in the exorcism, they had to pray over this poor girl endlessly. Yes. That's because the priest had no authority. But is it always that easy for you, a, a couple of yes. prayers, and they're, and they're done? Is that easy for anybody who has received the, what, what, what's called in the New Testament the baptism of the Holy Spirit? So a, a demon has never battled you and fought back? But the, the worst has been maybe seven minutes at one point. Uh, I, I have a number of churches that for, for many years have been sending people to me when they suspect that they are possessed. And one time, this is when I was working with 100 Huntley Street, uh, I got a call from a church in actually in the Brampton area, and they asked if they could bring a young woman down to see me. They'd spent seven hours, three hours one night, four hours another night, trying to cast this demon out of the person, this young woman, and uh, they said, we, we think she has a demon, but we're not sure. So they brought her down to see me. Two women came. And uh, 
uh, and I talked to her in my office, and I asked her if she wanted to be set free, and she said yes. I said, I want you to come into our chapel here. And she said, oh, no. She said, I don't want to go through this again. I said, young woman, this is going to happen so quickly, you're going to have a hard time believing it's gone. I said, we don't, I don't allow that, and we don't allow that to happen, like what happened in the church. So I took her in our chapel and asked her the same two questions. She agreed. I commanded, commanded the demons to leave. Then I laid hands on her, prayed with her. She, got, she invited Jesus to be her Savior and Lord, got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then she fell on the floor speaking in a new language. Now, the two ladies there sort of stepped backwards, and they, uh, oh, they, uh, they, and they said, is she set free? And I said, yes, she is. You can hear her speaking in a new language. And so one of the ladies called me back a few nights later, and she said, Gordon, she's wonderfully set free. I mean, she's one, it's wonderful to see, to see the real young woman here. And she said, but why couldn't we cast them out? I said, well, the demons found out that you didn't believe the whole Bible. <laughs> and they said, I was trying to be kind. Uh, and they said, well, what, what do you mean? We do believe. We're a Bible-believing church. I said, tell me about the baptism of the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. And they started saying, oh, she said, that's a matter of opinion. I said, yes. And the demons found out you had the wrong opinion. Yeah. That's why you couldn't cast them out. <laughs> These demons are uh, very well-read individuals. Oh, yes. Hey, listen. <laughs> they, they, they will often come pretending to be a god, and they, they know, they, like the devil, they know the scripture. Are they receiving their instructions from Satan? I, I don't know. I, I think they're just sort of, maybe it's just sort of built in. <laughs> there, I, we, there's no place in the Bible that there's a conversation. I'm glad you asked that question. There's no place in the Bible where there's conversation between the demons and the devil. Although he's supposed to be the ruler, I don't know. <laughs> hmm. Are you familiar with the the case uh, of what was called an authentic demonic possession? It was reported by a, a board certified a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Richard Gallagher, from uh, who studies or, or, or um, has a, a, a practice in New York. Oh yeah, the New York Medical College, and he wrote. Uh, and this is a man of science. Yeah. And uh, he was ref a patient was referred to him, and after being with this patient and trying to treat her, he became convinced uh, over a period of several months that this was, and he these are his words, this was an authentic case of demonic possession. This comes yeah. from a man of science. Do you remember this story? Yeah, yeah, I do vaguely. Uh, there's another uh, uh, doctor, psychiatrist, uh, oh, I can't think of his name right now, who ha has had this, a similar experience. And it completely changed his, his attitude to, uh, to uh, the Christian faith. <laughs> well, I, I must admit that while I, uh, you know, I have a, a faith, uh, it, it's probably, maybe it's not as strong as I'd like it to be. I'm working on that. But I have to admit that when I interviewed Dr. Richard Gallagher and, again, heard this man of science mm -hmm. talking about his patient having uh, paranormal abilities, uh, levitation, uh, witnessed oh, yeah. these things, that sent chills up my spine. Yeah, see, anybody is possessible who has not had this experience that I've been describing this in the New Testament. See, on the day of Pentecost, as you may have heard the story, uh, that was the first time the Holy Spirit was poured out into, uh, well, in, uh, into a group of people uh, through Jesus after he ascended to heaven. And they went on the streets uh, speaking their, their languages. But they also had authority. Now, there's a story in the, in the book of Acts about seven brothers, they're called the sons of Sceva, who observed uh, the Apostle Paul casting demons out of people. And so they thought, hey, we'll do that. <laughs> so they, there's this uh, uh, person who was possessed, and they went there, and they, they started trying to command this, uh, the spirits to leave. 
And uh, the Spirit says, hmm, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but I don't know you. And so all seven of them got beat up by the this, this demon in the, in the man, and they ripped all their clothes off, and they went running down the streets. Now, that's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, sort of what happens today, but not always. Uh, their clothes get ripped off. Right, but right. they can do that. I I had an appointment one time to see a a, a, a man in in, in, in uh, when I was with 100 Huntley Street, and I was I got caught in traffic, and I was about half an hour late. And this man was sitting in the hallway waiting for me, and he, every time somebody walked by, he'd growl at them, rah rah, <laughs> and and so <laughs> some people are getting very nervous. <laughs> so uh, so four four of the fellows there on staff took him into into an office there. And tried to uh, cast demons out of him, uh, which for which he was unwilling. And so he literally beat up for them, and they went running out of that office. The one guy had a black eye, and they were bruised, and and one his his shirt was torn, and his sports jacket was ripped. And so I didn't know anything about this. And the man walked back out and sat down where he was waiting. And then when I came in, I I said, "Are you?" I, I said his name, and he said, "Yes, sir." And so I, I took him in the sa- not knowing the same office. And then simply asked him the questions I usually ask. And he said, yes, you want to be set free. And I cast the demons out of him. And he started speaking a new language. And I took him into the cafeteria. We were having coffee. And one of the four men who attempted to deal with him came over to me and called me aside. And they said, you better be careful. That man he's a very dangerous man. And I said, no, he's not. He's fine now. Why? What's the problem? He said, I'll tell you later. So that's when I heard the story. Have you witnessed uh, uh, personally witnessed a possessed person levitating? Uh, yeah, that can happen. I, I've, I watched. Yeah, I've seen that happen. Sure. Can you give me an example? Well, uh, actually, a little girl whose mother went to see the um, the uh, movie The Exorcist, and and she she ran out of the movie terrified because it, uh, what she saw on the screen was had been happening to her three year old daughter. Oh my. Same thing, and she she almost she almost had a breakdown until somebody saw a um, an interview in the Toronto Star that I had done, and I mentioned that you know it's this uh, that part of the movie is true, but but uh, but certain Christians can set people free, and so she brought her little daughter to see me at my office, and this little three year old had a vocabulary of a prostitute. Uh, and it was uncontrollable. And I said, where did this all start? And she said, in our, in our home. I said, well, you go home. I'm going to follow you there. She lives in Malton. And so I followed them over there. It was a very, very hot day. I went in. And so they, they, I followed them in. And uh, the, the, she had the little girls in a, sitting in a, well, in a, in a crib. The only way she could get any kind of control over the kid. And the kid was sitting there, not moving a muscle, but bouncing like a basketball. Up and down, up and down. And the the uh, the room was so cold I could see my breath. Mm. That also, they also cause temperature changes in 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 the buildings and houses. And so, uh, with the mother's permission, I cast a demon out of the little girl, and I prayed with mom and the little girl, and they both prayed with to, with me to invite Jesus Christ to be their savior and lord, and both received the Holy Spirit, and both were speaking in new languages. Now, that was some years ago, and I had the privilege of, of officiating at the wedding of that not-so-little girl. Wow. <laughs> and uh, she now has uh, at least two children that I'm aware of. And she's got a great husband. So, yeah. 
who is also a Christian. <laughs> but anyway, yes, I've seen stuff like that happen. Do the do the demons when they leave the body? Do you actually see them fly out of the body, or what sometimes, you... uh, but most often? Well, I'll tell you. Sometimes when I command them, see, you, you can't just cast them out. I have to send them to a particular place. And in the Bible, it's called the abyss. Now, that's like hell <laughs> for them. And if we don't send them there, they'll go out and move around and pick up some more demons. The Bible says seven more, uh, and then come back and try to harass the same person or the same house again. So we have to send them to the abyss, and that's where they go. But have Sometimes, you ever seen a, a, a demon manifest itself into another form? Well, yeah, I've seen them in, like, birds. I've seen them like animals. I've seen them... I was just about, I just came back from Ecuador, and at one of the services there, a, a young woman and her husband came up, and they, they, they uh, uh, said, I asked them what they'd like to pray for, and sh they said, we would like to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I said, great, so you invited Jesus to be your Savior? Yes. And so I, she said, I also have a problem in my chest. She said, I don't know what it is, but it, it's, it's really bothering me, and, and I don't know what's going on here. So I said, okay, I commanded anything that was not of Jesus Christ to leave her body. Well, and, and, and it did. And then I prayed with them, and they received the, the Holy Spirit in their lives. Uh, afterwards, she came to me, and she had drawn a picture. She said, this is what I saw come out of me, out of my mouth. It was a it looked like a wolf. She drew a picture of it, and uh, I still have the picture, and I actually put it in my, one of my newsletters uh, uh, after I came back. But, uh, yeah, so they, sometimes they will be seen, other times they will not be seen. They will show themselves as people, they will show themselves as, uh, oh, anything, animals, rats, dogs. I've, yeah, I've seen them like big, huge birds or hawks or whatever. Bats? R hmm? A bat? Yes, yeah. My Huge word. bats. <laughs> yeah. So, see, they, they take, uh, they, will, they will appear and manifest themselves as something that they think will frighten you. I um, had a conversation with uh, someone, we're coming up on the anniversary of John Lennon's birth. He'd be 70 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I had a conversation with someone who knew a family in Georgia, that had befriended Lenin's assassin, obviously before he killed Lenin, Mark David Chapman. Yeah. Mark David Chapman spent a great deal of time in this family home. And uh, the, the fellow that I interviewed said this family, before Chapman showed up, they were having some very strange things going on in their house. Their, their young daughter was exhibiting some very odd behavior, was very violent. She, at one time, she tried to bludgeon the, the mother and father in their sleep. Uh, so it was obviously there was something demonic going on there. Yeah. Now, Chapman, although they never spoke of these incidents to Mark Chapman when he would come and visit them in their family home in Decatur, Georgia. Yeah. Then, of course, that family moves away, and we know what happened to Mark David Chapman. He descended into madness and eventually would find his way to New York and uh, would, would, would kill Lenin. Well, what wasn't made widely known to the press, when... Mark David Chapman was arrested. They re originally, they took him to Bellevue Hospital. Yeah. And he said that two demons had told him, and he named them, mm -hmm. uh, had told uh, him, uh, Chapman, to kill Lenin. Yeah. And he would, in later conversations, he, he reported that these 
demons had come to him while he was visiting this family's home in Decatur. And keep in mind, again, they had never, ever talked to Chapman about what was going on in their home. So that was kind of odd. And then, I believe in an, another interview, he indicated that he experienced what I believe he called an um, an instantaneous or spontaneous, spontaneous exorcism. And these two entities came out of his mouth. I just wanted to know what you thought about that. Yeah, that certainly can happen and does happen. Uh, it, it's uh, often uh, they, you know, these things will will show themselves uh, in. Well, uh, 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 they set people up just like that so that he he will pay the price, and that's just like that young man that I was talking about who had superhuman strength. He was to, he was being told by the demons to kill people now, and he didn't he didn't want to hurt anybody, but. He knew that that if he did didn't do what it said, it was going to hurt him really bad, terribly, and so that's when he called for help from his father. Now, many people don't know who to call to help for. That's the that's another problem. All right, well, many of them who many people were told that they told me that they were told by these demons to or demon whichever they had in them to leave to go and hurt somebody or kill them. All right, we'll uh, take another time out back with more in a moment. My conversation yep. with the Reverend Gordon Williams here in the Conspiracy Show. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Back with the Reverend Gordon Williams. Last we spoke, you were actually... I believe, very close to uh, finishing up a book on all of your uh, experiences. Actually, I'm right in the middle of it right now. I have uh, an editor working on uh, where I've got about half of it done right now. And um, so I'm, I'm hoping that'll be way well. We could be done within the next couple of months anyway. And this is a book about uh, exorcisms, demonic possession? Yes. Yeah, and how to deal with it. Uh, actually, we, we, the working title is Ghost Busting for da- Dummies, but I... <laughs> That's not. That'd probably not be the, the title, but no, because anyway. it's a misnomer. Because as you pointed out, these are not these are not uh, spirits. These are demons, and people are being well. Deceived. Spirits and demons. It's, right. Evil spirits or unclean spirits or demons. They're all the same thing. They're just uh, they're described differently and use the same term means same same different terms mean the same thing. Well, we were talking about Mark David Chapman uh, yeah. b- before, and you mentioned this fellow that had the superhuman strength, and he was yeah. told to go out and kill somebody. Yeah. Talk to me about the, the 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 victim, the internal struggle that they encounter with the demon. I mean, are they hearing this voice in their head? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, when this thing goes, it's like I said, it's like putting your hand in a rubber glove. They get inside a person, and they can start, uh, they take control virtually. Uh, often uh, they will, if they talk, uh, start trying to talk to other people about it, they will uh, start to convulse and fall on the floor and uh, be hauled off to a psychiatric ward someplace. They will learn after, after a number of, uh, number of these experiences not to talk about this. So do, uh, they, do they ever, uh, in other words, they lose themselves, they black out, yes. and, the, and the demon takes over entirely? Yes. Many of them will have memory blanks, and they don't know what what happened. For how long? Can it last months? As long as they live, or until somebody can set them free. But in terms of the the, the period when the demon takes over temporarily, uh, and they black the person blacks out. I mean, how long can that go on for? Oh, I don't know. It can be for long periods of time, or or 
sometimes they, they feel like they're observers watching themselves, you know, do things that they didn't want to do. Are there um, people in the medical field, perhaps um, emergency room uh, physicians or people that work on the psychiatric wards, that although they won't admit it publicly, they will call you and consult with you privately? Yes. I've had, I've, in the past, uh, I've, I've had a, uh, two psychiatrists that used to uh, call me. They're both retired now. But, um, yeah, because... Uh, and it's interesting because when I, uh, when I came back from the United States uh, to Brampton, I, my first hospital call, I saw two, that there are two, uh, two patients that I was supposed to visit who, who were in the psychiatric ward. And so I went in and, uh, and I asked the nurse if I had a room I could talk to this young man in. And she said, sure, give me a room. And I got to talk to him. I realized this guy is possessed. And so I talked to him about this and getting set free, and he agreed. And so I cast the demons out, and he received Jesus as a saving Lord and got baptized in the Holy Spirit. So then I said, thank me. And I went out and talked to, uh, asked, found this other young woman, and I took her back in the same room. I got talking to her, and I realized she's also possessed. So I take authority over her with her permission, cast them out. She gets uh, set free and, and receives Jesus as her saving Lord and speaking in her new language. And so then I leave. I thought, then I went to the hospital. And um, the next day I got a phone call from one of the, from the, the head nurse at the psychiatric ward. She said, uh, she, the, the psychiatrist here would like to uh, ha- have a meeting with you. They'd like to discuss this new therapy that you apparently have. <laughs> new therapy, said, indeed. Uh, before I did that, I said, I'll drop in and have a talk with you. And as soon as I mentioned demons, she's just, her, her eyes went blank, and I knew that was it. And I knew that they've, I'd never get a call from them. But nevertheless, um, uh, later on, though, one of the psychiatrists there did call me, and uh, he called me a number of times. And and, uh, um, and it turned out he uh, was a, he has, had been a, his father had been a minister, actually. And he, this is the one area that he really questioned, but he no longer questioned it after he, he saw a few people that were set free. What what percentage, roughly, of your ministry is taken up by uh, exorcisms, uh, dealing with demonic possession? You know, I, 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 <laughs> I sat down some time ago and tried to figure that out. And because it gets so much attention, see, often we pray with people to get healed. Well, you know, that's, that, that, doesn't get much, that gets some attention, but not much. But what's... Once somebody gets set free from some demons, uh, well, that they, they that becomes very, uh, you know, you, you, I, I guess at one time maybe five percent. I found that actually in the scriptures, this is rather interesting. I <laughs> got you mentioned that. I went through all the whole Bible and and counted out all the references to the devil, to Satan, which is the same person, demons, uh, and fall, all fallen angels, the whole thing. And then I went through and checked out. That, I call that the kingdom of darkness. Then I went through all the references to the kingdom of heaven, and, and it was interesting because the percentage uh, mentioned in the Bible is uh, of, of the of the of the enemy or the, the you know the, the demons and the devil and that sort of thing is actually point zero 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 one seven of one percent. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's it's obviously it's a sensational topic, and that's why yes, why we draw attention to it. That's right. But I mean, is but is it safe? I mean, you've talked to me about how you're you're so busy with this, and your phone is yes. ringing off yeah. the hook. So obviously, yeah, it's a problem. 
Yeah, certainly because there are few people around that that that, that uh, are equipped to do this, and uh, the few that that I know, uh, they get called. But they all, certainly all, they they sort of keep it low key. And see, when, after I appeared on on CTV uh, about the the Exorcist, when I would go to a, a conference, it was like Moses opening parting the sea. Uh, people would turn their backs to me and face away, and I could walk straight down through them, and nobody would look at me virtually. You mean you mean friends. your you mean your fellow pastors? Yes, because they were embarrassed by it. Well, they they didn't believe it and thought I was crazy, and they yeah, or or embarrassed about it, whatever. But see, there are a lot of things in in ministry, a Christian ministry, that in order to help people, we have to do them, whether they're popular or not. And this is the most unpopular one, but it's also the one. That where people get so desperate, and uh, I mean, uh, from the results I've received from your, your well, uh, from your f- uh, program, I mean, <laughs> that that just shows over and over again. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I had a a, a call after the last uh, program from a Muslim family in in uh, well here in Ontario, who had, had moved into a new house, and uh, the man's wife said that we moved in with the devil. And they're actually, it was demons. And her one son was possessed. Now, and as uh, anyway, they called and see if they'd come to see me at my house, and they didn't. And I said to them, I, 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 I don't want to hurt your feelings, but the only way I can do this is if you are willing to let Jesus Christ be your Savior, Lord, and God. And they said, well, you know, the, the, the Quran mentions the Jesus. I said, yeah, only as a prophet, but he is the Most High God. And he said, that's the only way I can do it. Or, or, or it can come back on you worse than it is now. And the woman said, I don't want that being worse. So I said, you go home and think about it. So they did, and then he called me, and he said, that man said, yes, please come. So I went over with them again. Now, they had another son there who has was, who was not been affected, at least not possessed. And so when I went over it with them, the, the possessed one said, no, we go to the mosque. And I said, uh, and father said, no, we go to the Most High God. And so I was able to set the boy free, uh, they all received Jesus as their Savior and Lord and got filled with the Spirit and were speaking in the new languages that was promised. And so, uh, there, and I went through the house and got rid of some that, that were in there. But, see, people to think that all religions are equal, they are not. The only, uh, only faith that has this authority is through Jesus Christ. And it's not that, you know, I'm not trying to put anybody down, but this is where the, one of the distinctive uh, points about uh, being a Christian. The rise of um, the popularity of, of uh, demons and vampires in popular culture, I mean, you can't flip on the TV now. All of these TV shows that are yeah. based on the paranormal and the occult yeah. and the movies are all about vampires and demons yeah. and, and possessions these days. Is that is that simply... Uh, a harmless fascination, or is there something uh, else at work here? In other words, um, is does this reflect this in in motion pictures and television? Does this reflect an actual rise in demonic activity? Uh, at least a, 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 a greater recognition of it, because I think part of what this these these uh, movies do and, and books is that. They give people the idea that they can have power over other people, and uh, that's uh, always been a major problem in the world. 
but there's a power that's <laughs> stronger than all of those, and uh, they uh, uh, are not really looking at it seriously because we don't have many Christians, uh, clergy, or Christians, you don't have to be clergy to do this either, by the way, um, we have not that many people here in North America especially. Now, in other countries, they know all about this stuff. Uh, they've been raised on it, and they've been lived in terror by by demons and and the devil and the whole stuff. Uh, but no, no, and they come here and they think it's, it's obvious to them. And I remember a man who moved to the United States from the Philippines. He thought he was coming to a paradise on earth. He got here and he found out that there are more. He saw more problems of, of you know evidence of demons and they're controlling people and things than he did in the Philippines. And he thought it was bad over there. I just, I, I think, uh, let me ask it another way. Do you think it's possible that these uh, movies and, 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 and uh, television shows all about demons and possessions and vampires and so forth, uh, is, is Satan behind this? Well, yes, yeah, certainly. Absolutely. Uh, because, see, his job is to tempt people to not follow the real God. See, and to see if that... Now, his job is to tempt people to see if they're going to be faithful to, to, to the real God, to Jesus. And so, uh, so he, he does a pretty good job at that. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say. Yeah. Uh, By the way, we also have authority over this, uh, those of us who are baptized in the Holy Spirit, we have authority over the devil as well. Uh, we're told in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the New Testament to resist the devil and he will flee. And it's just a matter of what, somebody who has this authority to say, the Lord rebuke you, and, and that's also in, in, the, in the New Testament. And the devil has to go. But if you, uh, if you don't know what you're doing, either with him or with demons, then you're, you end up getting into bigger trouble. <laughs> uh, the, the Ouija board. Uh, uh, people that uh, trifle with this, yeah. uh, I've always contended are messing with fire. Uh, yes. To what extent is the Ouija board a problem? Okay, I, uh, it's interesting you mentioned this, because in my first year of seminary, one of the, my classmates w was given a Ouija board uh, <coughs> for Christmas, and, and I'd heard about them, I'd never seen one before, and so uh, a group of us were in this uh, friend's apartment, and, and uh, they got on the, on the Ouija board, and it started giving predictions. In fact, one of the fellows there said, in three years, your, your, son, your baby is going to die. And they asked questions about, you know, things in the newspaper and, and good answers. So I finally said to them, let's uh, well, ask this what his name is. Well, it gave a name, and I said, no, tell him we don't believe that. Well, and he gave another name, and I said, no, we don't believe that. I said, another name, another name. I said, we don't believe that. And then finally it spelled out S-A-T-A-N. I said, that's the source, destroy the board, and he did. Wow. See, um, How do you destroy a Ouija board? Pardon? How do you destroy a Ouija board? You, you take an axe to it. Sometimes you can't burn. Sometimes they won't even burn, which is really kind of fascinating to me. I don't know. No, I, I've heard stories about this. I've heard people throwing them out, and then they find their way back. Yes. That's why you've got to take an axe to them or chop them up or put them through a grinder, uh, because there is spiritual power there. How do you feel, though, that these toy stores are selling these things? Well, they'll sell anything that's popular, regardless of the results. In fact, if you recall, the ex movie The Exorcist, it was through a Ouija board that 
that the girl got possessed, which is based on a true story, by the way. I think you know that. Yes, I do. Yeah. It was a Ouija board, my yeah, word. Yeah, it was a Ouija board. Can you uh, also make yourself more susceptible to demonic possession if you, let's say you, you sit down and you watch one of these uh, movies about, uh, you know, demons or so forth. Is that is that an invitation for possession? Well, uh, I've, years ago I would have said no, but since then I've, I've, I've I had to help people who had actually, while watching a movie, got possessed. And so it's... Um, you know, it, we have to be very careful. What really, what what we expose ourselves to or our children to, uh, because they can have some permanent re- damaging results. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. What's next for you? I mean, uh, do you foresee a day when you'll be too old and tired to to actually <laughs> perform these exorcisms, or can you do this right until you know? Right till, right till I die. In fact, I'll give you, uh, I'm going to be preaching in uh, Manit- no, in Saskatchewan uh, next month uh, in, a, in a church. The pastor is just is turning 99 while I'm there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this guy has been going steadily. Uh, I, I was at a priest for him six years ago. I didn't realize he was 90 then. <laughs> My word. And so that's what I, how I expect to be going on. Uh, there, there's no, uh, what I have to tell other people, especially clergy, there's no retirement clause. In, in our contract with God. <laughs> true enough, true Moses enough. Moses got hired on at 80, so... <laughs> All right, Gordon, uh, always a, a, a pleasure. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll be in touch. Certainly. Look forward to it. All right, when we come back, Bill Gibbons, the dinosaur hunter, reports on his recent trip to Europe in search of a vampire. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, this is Richard Serrett. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. In search of sunken cities and weird science, Mythical beasts and modern day bloodsuckers. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett continues from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Well, it's good to have an old friend back on the program. Uh, it's been a while. I think the last time I talked to Congo Bill, as some call him, he was uh, in Africa on the trail of a, uh, well, what the local pygmies in uh, that part of Africa believe is an actual living dinosaur. But uh, this time around, he's here to talk about something quite different. He's just returned from uh, Europe uh, with his family. And uh, while I'm sure over there he was enjoying the sights and the sounds and the cuisine, his motive is actually quite different. Uh, Bill is uh, here to tell us about some of the local vampire legends uh, that he's uh, investigated uh, during his trip to uh, the Scotland and Paris and Venice and, uh, and uh, even Holland, vampires in Holland, if you can believe it. Bill Gibbons. Bill, how are you? I'm great, thank you, Richard. How are you? Very well. You're, uh, just, you've completed a, a whirlwind tour of Europe? Absolutely. Um, great Britain and Europe started off in Scotland and moved down to England for a little bit, and then we went on a whirlwind tour, as you put it, to several European countries. 
Did you go there specifically looking for vampires, Bill? It was a combination. I, I Because I've been kind of studying vampire lore and history of Europe and Great Britain, I thought this would be a good idea to sort of uh, combine a visit to new and interesting places as well as old haunts and have a discreet look into some local vampire legends, starting off, of course, in Scotland on the southwest coast, where I'm from originally. So when you went to Scotland, did you go back to your old stomping grounds? I mean, literally your old hometown? I mean, did you have a vampire legend there? My hometown is Stranraer, and uh, on the southwest coast. Now, not far from there, there's a village called Castle Kennedy. Now, most of the locals do not talk about the White Lady as she's known. Uh, you know, this is a, supposedly a local vampire that haunts a ruined castle um, in the grounds of a, a modern building inhabited by Lord and Lady Stair, or the Earl of Stair. Now, as a child in Scotland, I heard many tales about the Babu and Sif, that's called or, or Banshee, uh, which abound in the Highlands. These are the white women, and back in the mid-1500s, they were thought to have been responsible for the deaths of many, many young men who were found drained of their blood. Um, after spending uh, the night in remote and often um, abandoned cottages. Now, the White Lady of Castle Kennedy, some people think, may be um, a, well, perhaps one of the last of the White Lady vampires left in the world. Now, I did spend some night hidden in the bushes near the ruined castle to keep watch on the ruins. It's a little bit unnerving. Um, I guess. Exposed to the elements. <laughs> you know, uh, picked up some odd sounds that were not local wildlife and odd faint lights flitting inside the ruins, uh, which I just couldn't determine what they were. Now, although the grounds are patrolled by gamekeepers, apparently keeping an eye out for poachers, I really did feel an unworldly presence emanating from the ruins, and I was glad when daybreak came, to be honest with you. Well, Bill, let me ask you uh, bluntly, because you're a Christian. Yes. Do you believe it's possible that that vampires actually exist? I believe anything is possible. Um, you know, there is a very famous vampire hunter in England, the Right Reverend. Uh, he's a bishop, um, uh, Sean Manchester, in fact, the Right Reverend Sean Manchester, who is a bishop in the old Catholic Church, Bishop of Glastonbury. Just had him on the show famous. a couple of weeks ago, Bill. Oh, wonderful. Uh, he is famous for killing the Highgate vampire and perhaps another one. So he is convinced himself as a man of the cloth that the undead do exist. They may be quite rare now, but he's convinced that they do, and the Highgate vampire, of course, was an incredibly, uh, incredible case and very highly publicized the world over. So I'm not sure what impression you got of uh, Mr. Manchester. I've never had the opportunity to speak with him, although I've corresponded with him. Uh, but he is uh, convinced that the undead exist, and I think that's a strong possibility. Well, he makes he makes an interesting point, uh, and that is this. If you believe in God, and you and I both do, if you believe in the angelic realm, and, and both of us do, yeah. then you have to believe in the the other side. The in, Within the angelic realm, there are fallen angels, there are demons, and his point is that these demons are able to essentially reanimate a corpse. And that's essentially what we're looking at when, when we're talking about a vampire. So from that standpoint, it makes a certain amount of, of sense, I guess. It also accounts for the superhuman strength that vampires are said to possess. Now, the Bishop uh, Manchester does bring up a very good point there because 
There is a book written called He Came to Set the Captives Free by Dr. Rebecca Brown, who's a medical doctor. And she, as part of her duties in the hospital, used to witness as a Christian to her patients. And one of the people that she brought out of hardcore Satanism was a girl called Elaine Moses, who I believe has now passed away. She basically gave us a lot of information on the inner workings of these um, very, very dark and evil satanic covens. And apparently vampires and werewolves are Satanists who are indwelt by certain demonic spirits that can change their form or change the appearance of the person. And they were used to punish people that stepped out of line uh, within these covens or to go after people who were interfering with the coven's work. Uh, There is also a very good episode of Monster Quest called American Werewolf, where people down in Wisconsin area have been seeing these large, powerful, wolf-like creatures walking on two legs. And some of this activity was traced to a very strange and reclusive person living in a dilapidated old house in the Wisconsin country, or countryside. And um, he had a habit of leaving dead animals lying around which he said were part of his religion. I believe that there is some satanic goings-on in deepest Wisconsin um, uh, concerning um, satanic rites and uh, these wolf-like creatures, which I believe are demonically indwelt people who are able to change their form. Back to the the white lady in, in Scotland. Uh, I mean, have there been any unsolved, uh, strange sort of disappearances. Uh, maybe a, a body was found again drained of blood, but uh, obviously the authorities aren't going to talk about, you know, someone being a victim right. of a well, vampire. Yeah, you, you got a good point there. The people don't talk about it. I know that from the 1800s through to probably the 1940s, maybe the 50s, there were reports of people disappearing in the area. Um, vampires whatever they may be, in this case the white lady, could be just a demonic spirit, but but those who do feed off the blood of living creatures will often uh, feed off cattle or, or, or sheep or foxes or whatever to, to disguise the, the fact that they are present in the area. But I'm convinced that there is still very much a, a dark presence there in Castle Kennedy. Did any of the locals, uh, maybe over a pint at the local pub, talk about it? Uh, they they do tend to talk about keeping away from the area at night and, and, and being creeped, creeped out, as they say, and uh, occasionally catching a glimpse of a white figure around the castle area and the ground. So, uh, But they don't talk too much about it because they're just afraid. Um, and, um, you know, we've yet to see something major happen there that would make the headlines like Highgate, which, of course, is a place I went to after I visited Scotland. Ah, yes. Well, let's get to Highgate Cemetery, which at one time was its sort of its own separate little uh, village, but it has since been sort of surrounded by uh, London over the years. And uh, uh, is it still, I mean, accessible? Can you still get in there, or is it pretty much locked up? Oh, you can get in there. It's been cleaned up a lot. It's open to the public. The cemetery, though, is closed every night around 4 p.m. to discourage thrill-seekers, oddballs, etc., but I managed to conceal myself in some shrubbery with some camouflage netting. Um, you know, I've learned this over the years being a private investigator and, and you know, covert and surveillance techniques and so on. Now, there were some a very distinctive energy fluctuations and odd vibrations running through the site 
faint but still detectable. And I think there's some there's been ley lines that run through that area. Of course, it's an old area too because of the Roman remains in that location. Now I believe that there may still be a vampire, at least a vampiric spirit there, keeping a low profile by killing and subsisting off wildlife such as foxes, stray dogs, as human victims would raise the alarm again. That faint visual signatures of something quite tall was flitting through the catacombs. I caught on my night vision, I was using a generation five night vision binoculars, which were performed absolutely flawlessly, and you could see everything as if it was daylight. But I stayed put, well hidden in the shrubbery until dawn. Uh, and as you know, the, the sun came up, uh, the atmosphere became distinctly less heavy or menacing, as it were. So there's definitely a, a very maneuverable presence indeed at Highgate Cemetery. You spent the entire night there? Yes. You know, most people, uh, Bill, when they go to London, maybe they stay at the Savoy, <laughs> they, they take in some theater, <laughs> but not... That's true, absolutely. <laughs> but at the same time, I was staying with relatives outside of London. I just... Um, took the train into London and got on the, the tube of the London Underground to a place called Archway, which is the nearest to the cemetery, and made my way to the cemetery from there. And, of course, I had my night vision and uh, my camouflage netting, everything in a backpack, a uh, small backpack, so it didn't look too out of place. Um, but, like I say, in the morning, I was rather glad to get out of there. And two days later, I headed into Europe. To, uh, was it France? First of all, well, we, should, we kind of drove through, going from England over to uh, Europe. It's interesting that with the European Union, you can pass through these countries fairly quickly without border uh, controls uh, and without you being stopped too often in passport searches and everything. Um, we first off, uh, we went to Italy, to Venice. And um, in fact, before then, I tell a lie, actually, we, we stopped off in the Netherlands. Um, and in, um, you know, the Netherlands is, uh, it, I can tell you, it's the flattest country I've ever been in. Talk, I, everyone thinks Saskatchewan's flat. Just go to Venice or, or, or to uh, the Netherlands. We went to Amsterdam. Amsterdam is a very, very old city. Um, lots of canals, very old buildings. Um, you know, it's famous for its red light district, as you know. But there was a very odd atmosphere about the place. And I met a local gentleman who is a, a historian, and he talked about a... Uh, a, a vampire, or there's, there's some vampire activity that was happening there back in the 1940s. He's promised to find some information for me, and hopefully we'll be able to update you on that. But one place where vampires were known to exist was Venice in Italy, and I thought that would be worth a look, uh, because the grave of a suspected female vampire was found there recently. I think I sent you a, a, a link on the web uh, to a news report on yes. that. Now, going through the narrow canals on a gondola gave me the opportunity as a tourist, you know, masquerading as, to pan the camera around, get a good look into the, the old city of Venice. And this place uh, has buildings going back to the 1500s uh, with ancient buildings, uh, crumbling buildings almost, dark, dark vaults and basements. Um, you know, uh, which have been protected by heavy iron bars. And I did ask my the, the fellow that was uh, punting us through here if there was, uh, you know, if any of these buildings and I put up a haunted, any strange things going on. So it's it's like that in most of this city. We we don't come down into the canals late at night. We keep away from the oldest buildings because there's some very strange things going on, and mm. I wouldn't elaborate further. 
but uh, we were just leaving the city as light began to fade and you could see the gondolas pulling in um, to their to where they tie them up and leave them for the night because very few people go in the canals after dark for that reason for the for the reason being that the the, the gentlemen that uh, uh, that that operate their individual gondolas like you have a cab driver on his cab they don't like being there at night they're saying that a lot of the old buildings archways basements they just creep them out too much tell me about and this the I, I'm pretty sure he wasn't joking either okay but uh, tell me about the 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 news story the the grave uh, of a suspected female vampire that was uncovered recently the grave they believe is quite old and I'm just while I'm talking to you I'm looking for that reference very quickly uh, it was the grave of what they believe of a female vampire um, and um, it basically um, they, they found it almost quite by accident and um, they dug it up and they found that this uh, the, the remains had a, a, a stake or an iron axe head driven right through the jaw right through the mouth right to the back of the skull to almost as if to break the vertebrae and um, it was quite an interesting find and archaeologists became uh, very very excited by this now they've actually got a photograph on the web of this and uh, it's basically uh, an intact grave and it shows um, it, if at the University of Florence now and uh, digging up these graves investigating very carefully and the, the grave was from a, a, a female vampire of the 16th century now, um, what they actually did was they found another one uh, which had the remains of a female vampire buried with a brick in her mouth to prevent her feasting on plague victims because they believed that vampire activity in Venice was quite prevalent at the time when people were dying from the plague. I'm not quite sure why, um, but the medieval belief of vampires in that area uh, was quite endemic at the time, if you pardon the pun. And uh, they, actually some people blamed the vampires for spreading the diseases by feeding off the unclean blood of the, um, the plague victims. So very, very interesting. Why did they believe that the, the first grave uh, was the remains of a female vampire? Because there was an, uh, an axe in... Because they... Okay, sorry. Uh, because they believe that the... Um, uh, the, in the manner in which she was killed and, and with the, this, this large object jammed into her mouth, uh, that's not a normal burial by any stretch of the imagination. Now, the skeleton, interestingly, was unearthed in a mass grave from the Venetian plague, which was uh, happened in 1576. Um, and uh, it, it, it was about three kilometers northeast of Venice. Uh, where they dug these massive pits, uh, used a sanatorium to plague sufferers. They buried them in mass graves, of course. And uh, the, the plagues, uh, there was a succession of them, ravaged Europe between 1300 to 1700. And this is when the, the peak time when people believed vampires were about feeding off the blood of dead or dying victims. And as a, because of that, they were spreading the diseases around. Uh, so quite a, an, an interesting discovery. Uh, but of course, as you and I know, legends of blood-drinking ghouls and the undead go back thousands of years, and in many, many cultures around the world have these legends and stories. So obviously there has to be some truth behind them. Did you get as far as Romania, Bill, or are you saving that for next trip? I'm certainly saving it for the next trip. I did get as far as Paris. Now, historical accounts include a French nobleman 
who by strange fortune kept his estates to the period of the French Revolution, as most rich people got the chop back then, didn't they? Yes. Now, following the revolution, he took out his animosity against the common people by executing many of his employees one by one. Now, eventually he was assassinated soon after his burial. A number of young children died unexpectedly. According to reports, they all had vampire marks on them. I'm presuming these are puncture marks in the neck and other parts of the body. Now, these killings continued for about 72 years. Finally, his grandson decided to investigate the charges that his grandfather was a vampire, and in the presence of local authorities, he had the vault opened. But while other corpses had undergone the expected decomposition, the Viscount, this French Viscount, was still fresh and free of decay. That's not unknown, but, but still very unusual. Yes, yes. Uh, the, uh, even after 72 years of death. I mean, the face was flushed, there was blood in the heart and chest, new nails and skin had grown and were soft, the body was removed from its resting place, and a white thorn was driven into its heart. And as the blood gushed forth, the corpse made a groaning sound. Oh my. Yeah, the remains were buried. Now, there were no more reports of unusual deaths of children from that day forward. Now, J.A. Middleton, who originally wrote uh, of this particular case, discovered that he had been born in Persia, this is the vampire, married an Italian, and later moved to France as a naturalized citizen. And it's believed that he brought his vampirism from the Far East, where, again, there are many stories of vampires. Now, I should finish this by telling you that the catacombs of Paris it's just an incredible maze of underground tombs and tunnels. Now, this is located in the south, the former city gate, the Barrière d'Enfer, if I pronounce that correctly. It was opened in the late 18th century. The underground cemetery became a tourist attraction on a small scale from the early 19th century and has been open to the public on a regular basis from 1867. Now, following an incident of vandalism, the tunnels were closed to the public in September 2009, but reopened December 19th the same year. Now, here's the interesting thing. This region is still said to be haunted by Brother Anthony, who is a 600-year-old priest who became a vampire. And you can actually still tour those underground tunnels today. But if you're claustrophobic, I wouldn't recommend it. Oh, my. Uh, now, the purpose for you going over there and, and researching these... Uh vampire legends do i smell a book coming on yes i've decided to do this um well for personal satisfaction also i have a book um in mind for uh it's going to be on vampires werewolves and other demonic creatures now the reason for this book is because as you know richard um there's been a lot in the movies recently concerning vampires shapeshifters the willow movies being a perfect example yes these tend to captivate the, the, the imaginations of young people. And, uh, you know, as, as a result of this, the, you, we have these vampire subcults and goth cults and so on, where, you know, people do odd things. You know, they, they drink human blood. Uh, they have sharpened or elongated eye teeth put in uh, through dental work and sleep in coffins and wear strange clothing. They're not really vampires. It's a bit like Halloween for grown-ups. But it's, but it's a life, almost a lifestyle for many people. And I think there's a certain demonic um, attachment to this, uh, where the young people are being sucked into this kind of strange world of, of, of vampirism, um, a cult or movement almost. And it, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a very dangerous thing for young people to have their minds so occupied by, by such unhealthy obsessions. 
And especially when you have the Hollywood treatment where it gives the whole thing a romantic... I agree. Uh, you know, a blanket. You know, they, they have this sort of... Uh, uh, they throw a, a, a romantic blanket over it all and, and, and you know, to the point where people think, well, being a vampire must be the coolest thing in the world. Well, it's not. It's it's a horrid thing. And so the book I'm, I'm planning on writing now exposes... Uh, well, it goes into the history of vampirism, some true cases of vampirism, such as the Highgate vampire, and also um, this dangerous subculture, almost cult-like thing that's, that's beginning to emerge and becoming more and more prevalent thanks to the Willow movies, and what and Twilight. people need to watch out for as well as their parents. Good for you. Uh, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's high time that, um, that someone... Uh, wrote a book like that from that perspective because as you say Hollywood is they are romanticizing it and and uh, you know teenage girls r reading the Twilight books where the the main female protagonist is actually dating a vampire and it is all uh, sort of cast as a very romantic uh, thing but uh, these are uh, these are nasty demonic uh, entities so there's nothing romantic about it but um, uh, this was a bit of a departure for you and, and uh, very interesting. Uh, on the trail of vampires across Europe. I bet you had a great time as well. Oh, it was wonderful, Richard. Now, if you can stay awake long enough, I'm going to send you a, uh, a, some of those satellite images we discussed in a, about two minutes. Can't wait. All right, Bill, thank you. Well, thank you, Richard, and it's great to hear from you again. Talk soon. Bye-bye. All right, we're done. It's time to dim the lights. But before we do... I want to thank my guests tonight, Joel Skousen from World Affairs Brief, the Reverend Gordon Williams, a real-life exorcist, and of course, Bill Gibbons, the dinosaur hunter, and we can add vampire hunter to his list of credits. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I say in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.